podcast of The Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Today we have a special treat. I've invited a dear friend, Dr. Tony Barron, to share with us today from God's Word. If you don't know Tony, he is the uh, director, or the dean rather, of Azusa Pacific's uh, San Diego Seminary, and he's also a leader in our family of churches, and he's been just a dear mentor and friend, and we just so appreciate Tony. He's a dear brother. We're so happy to have Bobby, his wife, along with us today. And so I invite you to please join me in welcoming up Dr. Tony Barron. Tony, can we pray for you, brother? Please. Awesome. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are God who speaks, and we pray that you would speak to each of us today in a fresh way, and we pray for Tony, Lord, would you put your spirit upon him afresh and just speak to him today, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, good morning. What a wonderful, beautiful morning. Let's lower that. That'd be good. Thank you. The last time I was with you, you guys were amazing. Uh, and remember when I asked you to use your imagination about the subject of awe? And I'm sure that some of you talked after church about awe and, and the implication of where it, what it means. And the understanding in the biblical sense, really, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the idea is the awe. Well, today I want to use your imagination again. And I want you to think for a moment of the greatest celebration you've ever been part of in your entire life. It could be a football game. It could be something, if you're old enough, uh, in WW2 or the end of Vietnam or whatever, great celebrations. It could be your favorite baseball team. I remember in San Diego when the Padres actually made the World Series one time. That was probably before 80% of you were born. During that period of time, cars were honking in the streets. They couldn't believe it. Of course, they got devastated in the World Series, but they made the World Series. That was the important thing. So would you guys just share for a moment each other the greatest celebration that you've ever been part of? And what was it like for you? How, and what did you observe from the crowd? I'll give you a couple minutes just to share with the person next to you. Now, if you had nothing to share, I want you to know you need to live life a little bit more. I just wanted to say that to you. Um, So someone share with me. How about over here? We'll start over here. Would someone share their greatest celebration they ever had in their life that was really exciting? Anybody here brave enough to do that? Okay, well, I want to tell you one of mine that I had was I did some consulting to retired Denver Broncos, and this was in the 1990s. And, and so as I worked with several of the Broncos during that time, they ended up being in the Super Bowl. And this is after John Elway has lost three Super Bowls in a row. They're now playing the Green Bay Packers and in San Diego. So Mark Cooper, who was the offensive guard for John Elway, um, uh, and now retired, called me up and says, Tony, I'm coming to the Super Bowl. I want to take you to the Bronco alumni party and, and all this. So he he came in with us. And you can imagine our little Alex was just thrilled. Uh, at the time, I forget how old he was, that back in 1997. And we were there. And of course, no one thought that the Denver Broncos were going to win, right? And they did. 
They beat the Green Bay Packers. And I remember Mark Cooper and I dancing. He's 6'5", 330 pounds, and we're, dan- we're swing dancing or whatever it is. And we're dancing around. We couldn't believe- I was hoarse for three days. And the crowd was entirely wild. Bobby and I, we just had such a great time at the Super Bowl, and it was fantastic. Celebrations are amazing, isn't it? It takes everything that's part of you to just let out, to to scream with delight, to have, even with strangers, you start hugging them because they're enjoying the very same thing that you're enjoying to have. I want you to know if that what we're going to experience today as we look at the gospel of Luke, we're going to experience that very, that the highest emotion that you could ever have in any celebrations that you have ever done took place during time of Jesus, what we call Palm Sunday. Now, what I want to be is uh, familiar with Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, everybody. I want to be the ent, the (laughs) E-N-T, and allow me to be tree bird, Beard, tree beard, thank you, instead of tree beer, you know, tree beard, beard, and I want to be that, we're going to the pub afterwards, no, I'm just kidding on that, and I want to be the person to tell you, because part of who the ants are, are the historians, right? They're the ones who fill in the story because many times when we do the course of Palm Sunday and if you've gone it week after week after, or year after year after year during Palm Sunday, you begin to realize this is familiar. What can actually be done? But I want to tell you as we look at this particular passage, the stories behind the stories. It's easy to describe this particular passage as you break it down as simply the, it starts with the preparation of the king, king of peace, Jesus. And then later on, we'll learn in terms of the procession of the king of peace. And finally, in the last part that Michael didn't read, but I want to cover just very brief, uh, briefly is the passion of the king of peace that we have. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 19. I'm reading from the New American Standard. In verse 28, it says, after Jesus had said these things, he was going on ahead and going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, let me just stop right there. Bethage is simply a half a mile away from the city gates in Jerusalem. Bethany is just like a sister city, very close. There's a a village close by. And it's on the south side of the Mount of Olives, Bethesda is. So it's very close. And what Luke doesn't mention, but John mentions that what happened in Bethany the day before was highly significant. Saturday was highly significant. Because what happened that day was they were eating at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Remember Lazarus, the one who was raised from the dead? And they were eating in the home, and the Jews were already convinced, the leadership was already convinced they had to kill not only Jesus, but they also had to kill Lazarus. Because the crowds were all being swayed to Jesus being the Messiah. And the religious leaders of the time couldn't have that. And if you remember that story, Mary takes really about 12 ounces of a perfume that's often used for burial, and she took the ounce, 12 ounces, and she dumped the entire, it was worth a year of, of really wages of a common worker, and then she unbound her hair, which you never do in a public setting, and she just placed it there and took her hair to wash the feet of Jesus. And of course, Judas was upset because he pilfers 
And that was a year's worth of wages at that time. That's not what's being mentioned here, but it's interesting that when Luke wrote these words and mentioned these particular cities, it was significant. So they could fill the whole story that came across. And it says, when he approached these cities and near the mount that's called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples to go into the village ahead of you there. And as you enter, you'll find a colt tied of which no one yet has ever sat and tie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. And so that's exactly what happened. It's a fulfillment of the Old Testament in terms of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that says these words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humbled and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so as we let this scene to understand in the fulfillment of Zachary 9.9, these individuals that are seeing this day, this nationalistic, in essence, a political liberation, was being prepared as they were entering to the east gates of Jerusalem. Now, Borg and Crossan often says it's not just one procession that was going on. There's probably two processions that were going on at this time as Jesus was entering on the donkey. It wasn't unusual at the time that Pilate, most of the year, would live in Caesarea by the Mediterranean Sea. And he would keep an Antonio fortress. And if you've been in Jerusalem, you realize it's a very closely attached to the temple or close to the temple of which one of the towers is large so that the soldiers can take a look at the temple to make sure there's no insurrection that is going on, no trouble at that time. And Antonia Fortress is big enough that they would have about 500 soldiers that were there and barracks enough for food and all the standard processes for people to live and, and take care of. But most of the time, Pontius Pilate lived in Caesarea, which was about 70 miles away. There he would have about 2,000 soldiers. And every time during the festival, because his, his MO, his desire, his call from Caesar was simply this, you must maintain law and order with these people. That Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, simply meant the absence of conflict. And so during the festival time, Pilate would come with his soldiers full in their armored gear and cavalry with horses that were there. He would ride a white stallion as he would come through the city on the east side. And people actually would be there, usually with their heads down out of fear to see the tremendous army that was coming into Jerusalem because they did not want to have an insurrection at all in that community. Now, tension is high because most of the Roman soldiers at their time were not from Italy. No, most of them were really from Syria. And most of those soldiers, the Syrians, hated the Jews with a passion. They were trained killers in what they had to do. With all their armor that they had, with their daggers and their swords, the crossbows that they carried around, the catapults that they would carry from one place to another, they hated the Jews, and as trained killers, they would do anything they could if some, if some Jew did an uprising. In fact, most of the crucifixions that you saw on the road to Jerusalem were based upon people that were charged of treason. Are you with me in the scene? 
So Pilate is coming, and he's coming to the west gate as he's entering into Jerusalem, and he's accomplishing his power by the sword and the shield. He's accomplishing his power by the sword that is acquiring more power by the use of weapons, which often creates pride. And he comes by the shield in terms of fear that there would be an uprising. And through that fear of that uprising, he wanted to manage that nothing would be done. And so he had a deal. In fact, the deal lasted 10 years with Caiaphas, the high priest. When Pilate was gone, when he was gone to Caesarea by the Mediterranean Sea, Caiaphas, in essence, was the mayor of this, the high priest was the mayor of Jerusalem. And Caiaphas wanted peace as well because he's an aristocrat. And as an aristocrat, he wanted to maintain the wealth and the prestige and the power that he had. And most of the Jewish people actually knew that. Most of the Jewish people who loved God and hoped for the Messiah to come realized that there was collusion between the political leaders and the religious leaders together to create this uneasy form of peace. And so, as Jesus begins to process, he takes the colt, and he's approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, according to verse 37. The whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Just use your imagination and think about all the miracles that the people witnessed during that time. Leprosy being healed. Demons being removed. Seeing Lazarus raised from the dead. Seeing miracles happening, words spreading, lives changed, the feeding of the 5,000. They are shouting this. They are dancing this. They are proclaiming this as they lay the palms and Luke doesn't speak about the palms, but the palms were really a symbol of liberation. And it's right before Passover, which is a symbol again of liberation from tyranny. And they are witnessing all this, and they're shouting to the top of their lungs as Jesus walks humbly during this time. Are you with me? You're feeling the sense? And you're feeling the sense of Jerusalem Population, probably a little over 100,000 at that time. I know there's re- recent studies that maybe 20, 30,000, but I don't think so. The Roman historian said there was 600,000, but really biblical archaeology talks about there was probably 100,000 people at the time that was there. And that during feasts, they would swell three, four times that amount. So the Roman soldiers were scared that there could be an ins- insurrection to overcome the peace of Rome that happens. What is 2,000 soldiers going to do with a half a million people? Even if they have weapons. And so naturally, naturally what happens is some of the Pharisees in the crowd, according to verse 39, says, Teacher, Rabbi, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these became silent, the stones will cry out. What he's saying is the king of peace, of true peace, is coming into Jerusalem. And so when Jesus, we have his preparation, his procession, but the last part I want to read to you is his passion. 
because the people were proclaiming, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And we read today Psalm 118. And I hope you heard the words about God's love. It's actually his loving kindness, his steadfast love. It's, a, it's an illustration in the Hebrew really of a, a mother that, in, that loves the child that is within the womb. That's how steadfast and how important the love is that God has for the people. That's how much he cares. And so Psalms 118 is the most quoted psalm in all the entire New Testament. And five times it says, God is loving. God is steadfast love. God loves. And when these words said, blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord, often scripture does that because all the Jews knew the rest of the Psalms that were there and they'd be singing the entire Psalms at the top of their voices. At the top of their voices. And so now Jesus is approaching Jerusalem And the Bible says he saw the city and he wept over it. I just want you to know his passion. That on this Palm Sunday when he was proclaimed the king, he looks over this city because they knew that Jesus knew that the people had to choose in terms of the Messiah, whether they want a Messiah of the sword and the shield Or do they want a Messiah, the cross and the towel? And Jesus weeps, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. I mean, just sit for a moment on that. The Jews were a group of people for centuries were oppressed by different empires. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Romans. They believed God betrayed them in many ways. The Pharisees were developed because they began to realize they're saying, well, maybe we're not holy enough. And so they began to act that way until they became almost hypocritical by their own actions. And they're beginning to think that the only way the Messiah can come and the only way they can be at peace is by the sword and the shield. And Jesus is weeping because any time any decision is made of the sword and the shield, it's always the one that has the more swords and the more shields win. Always. Based on power. And Jesus said, I am the Messiah, I am the King of Peace, but the only way you have peace, not just an absence of conflict, but the idea of shalom is a sense of well-being. The only way you have a sense of well-being, even in difficult situations, is to have me be your Lord. Caesar can't be Lord Jesus is Lord, which was the very first creedal statement of the early church. And so Jesus says, if you've known in this day, and he's saying this while he's weeping, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, 
and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And here it is. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They had a thimble of the Messiah and an understanding of what it meant. But they weren't willing to give up the process of what they think to make peace and allow Jesus to be Lord. So what happened to them is they missed out on that day of visitation that came. And we know that this prophecy by Jesus was fulfilled in AD 70. Graphic details, Josephus writes about it, that occurs during this time. That's the passion and the steadfast love of God. So, what does it mean to us? How can it apply to us in the most holiest weeks that we have? One, for those that are really struggling, which gate are you going to enter? Which gate are you going to determine your life by? Are you going to determine by the west gate and the only way you have power is by the sword and the shield? The only way you have power is really um, making money, saving money, increasing production, cutting costs, solving problems. The only way you have money, like the business world often talks about, is using people as tools. The only way you have money is that you lead for the sake of self. And that peace simply is an absence of conflict. That's the kingdoms of this world. You've noticed it, haven't you? You've read the papers. Or you enter the east gate and this time of visitation that you have with Jesus as you recognize that He's the Messiah, and I will live the way he leaves, that Jesus is Lord, and that I will trust him because I know he loves me. He loves everything about me. In my most painful moments, he was there. And when you wept, he wept. When you were hurting, he was hurting. When you were grieving over loss, he was grieving over your loss. When you made some decisions that hurt yourself or others, he saw that because he knew you while you were in your mother's womb. And he's saying that today's the day of visitation. (laughs) Don't miss out. I can't think of a greater week where you and I say to to others and to ourself that on this day I'm going to live my life that every moment of every day, every hour of the 24 hours, every minute within that hour, I'm going to live as Jesus is Lord. That I'm not going to let the kingdoms of this world influence me as much as I'm going to allow the kingdom of God to influence it. Are you with me? Because you may not believe it. You may not have the imagination for it. You may not have the vision for it. But I want you to know if you are 100% committed to the kingdom of God 
in the cross and towel ministry out there, you can change Fullerton. You can change Fullerton. You can be an influence in people's lives that are there because you live by a different way and a different time. When Galileo discovered the truth of the Earth's center, it caused all science to make some revisions, didn't it? And when you and I understand the truth of really what's reality, the kingdom of God, it will cause people to make some revisions when you live it that way. I know we're fragile creatures, aren't we? We hurt, we have pain, we believe, bleed. Sometimes we're uneasy and strained and oppressed and fearful. But that's exactly who Jesus was reaching to. And just says, give it all to me. Give it all to me. I know we'll probably sing some more because they're so great during that time. But I would like on this Palm Sunday that you sing with your voices as much as you can, as high as you can. I want you to do it for several reasons. One is I don't have a voice, and so I make a joyful noise to the Lord, and some of you may do that. But I'm going to sing to the top of my lungs because blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.